All right. Well, let's uh, return to our seats. Well, good morning. I hope you're feeling cozy here and inside. This cold out there. Um, our message today is titled "God's Royal Providence," and I don't want to be too mystical about this, but I just changed my introduction. I thought, man. We're singing this Christmas songs, and it really made me reflect and think, boy, if you look at the Christmas story, you know, how Christ um, came to be born, it is pretty amazing to see the Lord's providence in it all. You know, sometimes in, in, in wondrous ways, right, bringing a star to guide this magi, this man there, uh, you know, wise man, um, but other times with just simple things. Um, a pregnant woman that can't, you know, tell you when the baby's coming. The baby's coming. It doesn't matter if you have a, an interest or not. It's coming. You can't hold it. <laughs> it's just day-to-day things happen. And yet, all of them in the control of God. Natives of Bethlehem living somewhere else. But oh, there was this census that just so happened that at that time they had to go back to Bethlehem so that the prophecy about the baby being born in Bethlehem would be fulfilled. So all those little things that God orchestrated to, to make it happen, to have the king of kings to be born. In our passage today in 1 Samuel 9, uh, and we have kind of a long passage, 9 to chapter 10, verse 16, we'll see this, what I called God's royal providence, how he orchestrates to bring about, to appoint a king in Israel. And I believe, you know, that this is still the way that God does things. Now, I got to be honest with you. In our text today, we'll see God's providence in providing a, a, a king to faithless Israel. And as you open your Bible, I, I just must admit that it, this is not an easy, an easy text to preach from. It's one of the, the blessings of sequential preaching, right? You ended up following something. It's like, boy, if I could choose, I wouldn't. But um, it's not an easy text to preach. It is a long text, which I'm not going to read it all at once. But I, I want to give you a heads up that there are a lot of things that probably you have you scratching your head. It's one of those texts that we have to keep in mind, Romans 15, 14. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So this passage, complicated as it is, is supposed to bring us encouragement and hope. This will be my goal, is that you will look at some of the situations that God used for the good of his people and be encouraged that through circumstances, those circumstances have changed our God is still works his providence in our context as well. So let's start from Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 9. Actually, let's 
go back a little bit, so I think it will give some context. Let's go back all the way to chapter 2 with Hannah's song. And verse 7 says, The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy, lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them seat with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he set the world, the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give his strength to his king. And he will exalt the horn of his anointed. Go back to chapter, let's go back to chapter 8. And verse 19, this is, was our text last week. The people are asking for a king. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we might also be like all the other nations and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, after Samuel had heard all these words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing, and the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. And then some time has passed between this, we don't know how long. And we come to chapter 9. Now there was a man of Benjamin, whose name was, uh, was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bichorath, and the son of Aphiath the son of a Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man. He was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulder up, he was taller than any other of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish. Saul's father were lost, and so Kish said to his son, his son Saul, take now with you one of the servants and arise, go search for the donkeys. He passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. Then they passed through the land of Shalin, but they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant, who was with him, come. Let us return, or else my father will cease to be concerned for, about the donkeys and will be anxious for us. And he said to him, Behold, now there is a man of God in the city, and the man is held in honor. All that he says surely comes true. Now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us about our journey on which we have set out. I want you to skip to verse 15. Now, a day before all of this happened, Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, 
and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And he will deliver my people from the land of, from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. Let's pray. Gracious Father, uh, we come before you to praise you for your providence. This marvelous work that you do in the life of your people. Even to bring uh, minor details to fruition, to accomplish your goal, to accomplish your will. And as we reflect on this passage, Lord, may you teach us, may you encourage us and comfort us that you are still the same God today and you act in the same way that you acted in the past. You might not see the wonders and signs that we would study in our passage, but yet we know that you are a God that works. May we even be encouraged by that. May you focus our minds, um, and give us the understanding that we need. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray, amen. <coughs> All right, so providence. Uh, MacArthur and Mayhew defines the divine providence as God's care for the creation, involving his preserving its existence and meticulously guiding to it, guiding it to his intended ends. It is God's way of providing for the needs of his people. Uh, Ralph Davis uses this word providence to refer to a wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable way that Yahweh has of ruling his world and sustaining his people, and he's doing it frequently over, under, around, through, and, or in spite of the most common stuff of our lives or even the bias of our wills. So in our text today, we will see the context in which God's providence is seen in the life of his people. So I got three major headings there. You get your outline, and then you have some questions at the end there for you to reflect. So God's providence, first one, happens in the context of human affairs, or the ordinary of life. Point two, the con in the context of God's compassion. And then the point three is it happens in the context of God's faithfulness to his word. All right, so the first one, God's providence happens in the context of the human affairs. In verse one, we are introduced to Saul and to his family. Kish, like Elkanah, um, Hannah's husband, was supplied with a fourth generation genealogy. And then he will, it says there, he was a mighty man of valor. He was a man of standing. In Hebrew, literally mean a powerful man of strength or might or wealth. Now for the context that we read here, we see that he has wealth. He owned the slaves. He has donkeys. He has oxen. So it's not necessarily meaning that he was a man of good reputation. It just means that he was wealthy. Um, you will remember of uh, Boaz. He also receives that title. He was a man of valor. In Boaz's case, we know that it was both talking about his integrity as well as his wealth. So besides his fam favorable family situation, Saul himself was an impressive young man. He was a chosen and a good-looking, without equal, among the Israelites. The feature that almost obviously set Saul apart from the other Israelites was his physical appearance. There was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. 
From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. What a handsome fellow. I mean, I don't think I walk somewhere and people are like, oh my goodness, what a good looking guy. And I know most of us here, <laughs> we are not, we're not there. Um, would there be a Mr. Israel competition there? I'm sure he would have won it. Won it. And I'm ashamed that they didn't have basketball at Gibeah High School. With his height, Saul would have made it the star center of that team. The writer passes on to this story, and, but you must keep in mind the description of Saul in 9-1, his ideal appearance and his physical impressiveness. Although this characteristic would normally be considered an asset, the narrator may have included this detail as a subtle indictment of the king, the Israel first king. Saul is the only Israelite specifically noted in the Bible as being tall. That's an interesting thing. Elsewhere, it was only Israel's enemies whose height was noticed. So think about numbers and the, the giant people and for Samuel in chapter 17. Israel has asked for a king like all the other nations. We just read that in, in verse 20. And the Lord was given them the desires of their heart, even down to the physical details. I mean, we read some um, engineerist uh, writings, and you read about Egypt, and they tended to describe their leaders, their kings, their um, rulers, with this beautiful physical appearance, with their strength and their muscles. That's what Israel was wanting. Here, even Saul names adds to the irony Saul's name means asked for or requested. Isn't that amazing that in God's providence, even, you know, Saul's mother never, I don't think she was thinking, I'm going to bear a son and he's going to be what everybody's asking for. The narrator has already described that the people as asking the Lord for a king. Later, in his so-called farewell to address the nation, Samuel twice refers to Saul as the one that people asked for. So chapter 12 Samuel will constantly refer to that. You asked for this, that's what you asked for. And the people acknowledge that they have sinned asking for a king. Saul's very name is a reminder of the people's sin of rejecting the Lord. It suggests that he has been chosen according to their standard, not the Lord's. In any case, our attention switches to donkeys. Yes, donkeys. I remember reading this and I'm like, boy, now the donkeys of Kish. Let's, let's talk about the donkeys. The account of Saul's search uh, for his father's lost donkey has a twofold function in this story. One, in a positive note, it illustrates how God, in his providence, manipulates circumstances to accomplish his purpose. We just read that the Lord, the day before, was bringing Saul. How is going to bring Saul to be in the same town as Samuel? He had to do something. Saul's quest to find the donkeys leads him to Samuel, seemingly by chance, but it's really the Lord who sends him to the prophet. On a more negative note, the episode begins with the paint, to paint a portrait of Saul that is less than flattering. I mean, verse 5, we see his uh, come, let's go back. In contrast to his servant, Saul appears hesitant and passive. He is a follower, not a leader. The first words out of his mouth portray him as one who is ready to quit without accomplishing the task 
that his father has sent him to do. When the servant who knows of Samuel and his reputation suggests that they inquire of a prophet, Saul even initially raises an objection, verse 7. Then Saul said to his servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we bring to the man? For the bread is gone from our sack, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? So he's objecting to even go to the prophet. I think we need to pay him. I think it's a clue there, too, that he is someone that is insensitive, that he doesn't know that you don't pay a prophet to, to, to give you uh, information from God. Also, the story depicts Saul as one not he's spiritually in tune. He seems ignorant of even Samuel's presence. He does not take initiative in seeking divine guidance, and then he views such an insight as something to be that must be purchased. Um, I want you to notice, too, in verse 6, it says that everything that he says comes true. You will remember from the previous chapters that the word of God was speaking through Samuel at that time in Israel. And then um, let's keep uh, progressing here in, uh, in our narrative. Verse 8, the servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have in my hand a fourth of a shekel of silver, and I'll give it to the man of God, and he will tell us our way. Isn't that interesting? We're, oh, we have nothing. And all of a sudden, oh, here we have it. There's a coin. No more objection. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he used to say, let, come, let us go to the seer, for who is called the prophet now was formerly called a seer. Then Saul said to his servant, well said, come and let us go. So then they went to the city where the man of God was. Just picture that conversation. They kept asking people. Um, and as they went up to the slope to the city, verse 11, they found a young woman going out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? And they answered to them and said, he is. See, he is ahead of you. Hurry now, for he has come into the city today, for the people have a sacrifice on the high place today. Just so happened to have some women laying there, taking, drawing out water, and having seen Samuel. I mean, they could have missed each other. They saw, he's just right there, just run and you catch up with him. <laughs> that's, that's what they're saying there. So, um, I want you to note something here. Here we see common events of daily life, farmers looking for lost donkeys, asking dozens of local folks, have you happened to see so-and-so? Making a thorough tour of the central hill country, deciding to give up the fruitless search. You know, people give up on things easily, all the time. You have a persistent servant. Uh, oops. I have the right one here. Yep. Um, it was so to bring the monarchy to Israel, and we can be confident. We see God's providence leading his people, in, in, even in the minutia of, of details. Our God is the God who provides and orchestrates every single detail. He is the one... Um, who rules and orchestrates all these little 
situations and scenarios to bring about his will to be accomplished. We can trust him. All right, all of this is so natural and ordinary. Think of the chain of the ordinary events which brought Saul to the little town. The wandering of a herd of donkeys, the failure to get their, their tracks, the accident of being in the land of Zeus, they weren't planning to be there for that search. But God is thrusting all unconscious along the path which he knew not. I want to remind you that this is the God who directed cows to go against their own will, remember? Carrying a heavy cart miles uphill to bring back the ark to the place where it belonged in Israel. If the unbelieving Philistines could see that God was behind that nature, so can we. Open your Bibles to Psalm 50, chapter 50, in verses 10 and 11. It speaks of God's providence, of God's control over nature. And it states that our God knows every bird of the mountains and everything that move, moves in the field is mine. Even the cattle on a thousand hills are his. All these little donkeys were in control of God's hand. In God's providence, there's no place for chance. There's no place for luck. There's no place where it just so happened. Turn to Psalm 24.1 and you will see the same truth. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Flip a few more pages to 103, Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Not only were these animals being controlled by God, but Saul and the servant the young woman drawing up water. Why would people be there at the perfect time to warn Samuel's visit? You see, from the human standpoint, all of these did not did what they wanted to do, yet they did what God wanted them to accomplish. They, was not, they were not thinking, oh, I'm going to do this for God. It is what the theologian Lois Burkhoff calls it, simultaneous concurrency, concurrence. He explained, there is a lot of single moment that the creature works independently of the will and the power of God. It is in him that we live and we move and have our being. This divine activity accompanies the action of man at every point, but without robbing man in any way of his freedom. The action remains a free act of man, an act for which he's held responsible. End quote. Did the people ask for a king on their own? Yes or no? Yes, they did. Did God want them to have a king? Yes, he did. When it comes to his royal plan, God will move heaven and earth to accomplish his purpose. What a grace. You too, my dear brother and sister in Christ, can be confident that God is at work at the mundane of life over nature, over people, over every single circumstance of earth your life. If you have to put your trust in Christ, you can be conf if you put your trust in Christ, you can be confident that Romans 8.28, 28, 
And we know that all things, that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You see, Deuteronomy 17 predicted that the people would ask for a king. The problem, as we saw last week, was not that they wanted a king. It was that they wanted it with the wrong motives. In his purpose, God um, make all things work together to accomplish his goals. Every circumstance is at work to bring you to look, act, and sound more like your savior. It was so to bring a monarchy to Israel, and we can be confident that it is so in our lives as well. This is going to lead us to our next point. So in 1 Samuel there, chapter 9, verse 15, we just read it, that God revealed the day before to Samuel that Saul was coming his way. But I want to draw your attention to something more here that he says, about this time tomorrow, send a man, and you shall anoint him prince over my people Israel, and he will deliver my people from the hand of Philistines, for I have regarded my people, because their cry has come to me. And this is our second point. Providence happens in the context of God's compassion. God had compassion for his people. Uh, Verse 14, and we go um, through verse 14. You can skip actually straight to verse 18, and we'll see that that won't really progress the narrative. That little insert that God put in there, revealed there. You know, all of this happened, but the day before, God was already orchestrating this plan. Now, Yahweh had uncovered Samuel's ear the day before Saul's coming, saying, about this time tomorrow, I'll send this man. And then, um, as, you know, we continue reading here, when Samuel saw Saul, and the Lord said to him, behold, the man whom I spoke to you. See, this is the man that I told you about. He will govern my people. We hear that the secret what Yahweh is doing is, I will send you the man. That put this in a total different matter. What has so far happened is we saw kind of this laid back, coincidental occasion, but it's very much under Yahweh's direction. Now, Saul is sent designated, disclosed by Yahweh. Sometimes it, it helps to be in a secret, right? We don't know and he had no clue what was going on. Before we continue with the narrative, I do want to call your attention to a few words here in Hebrew that maybe the English doesn't bring as, as, as well. I want you to notice that how our translation comes in verse 16, that God would bring them as a prince to rule over his people. That is different than the term king uh, in Hebrew, Melech. This sudden appearance of this word is not used here in chapter 8. They were asking for a king, and yet God is giving them a prince or a, a ruler. This indicates that the Lord is not going to give his people exactly what they wanted after all. Despite this apparent decision to do so in chapter 8, the term um, for prince, uh, neged, it's translated prince in our versions, is used elsewhere of leaders in a variety of contexts, including tribal leaders, military officers, religious officials, and palace officials. But when used to the, na- um, the leader of the nation of Israel, normally kings is the word that you would be expecting. 
and yet that's not the one that the Lord have brought in here. The other thing I want you to notice is from verses 16 to 17, the Lord is, uses again and again the word my people four times. Whereas in the chapter 8, he refers to the people of Israel just as the people. This is an additional signal that the Lord who regards their request as a rejection of his kingship is not going to reject them. I think this is good to repeat. This is a signal that the Lord who regards their request as a rejection of his kingship is not going to reject them. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. The second half of the verse is a promise of deliverance that is linked to Yahweh's merciful response to their cry for help, implying that this leader will be operating as the Lord's instrument of salvation in spite of their disobedience to him. So I want you to notice also when he says that their cry for help, that as I was reading this, I think the first thing that comes to mind was Exodus. I remember the people of Israel crying for help, the oppression of, of their enemies, Exodus 2.23. And um, one commentator summed this up well. God speaks after the manner of man. He needs no cry to come into the ears to tell him of the woes of the oppressed. Nevertheless, he seems to wait until that cry is raised, until the appeal is made to him, until the consciousness of utter helplessness send man to his footstool. And a very blessed truth it is that he sympathizes with the cry of the oppressed. There is much meaning in the simple expression, their cry is come up to me. It denotes a very tender sympathy and a concern for all that they have been suffering and a resolution to impose on their behalf. God is never impassive or indifferent to the sorrows and the suffering of his people. That's providence. Um, we, we realized that their request was sinful in which they, were, they had the wrong motives, but God knew that they did need a, a military leader to lead them and protect them. He shall rule over them. Again, even the word there is not the regular word that we use for reigning. Um, Melech, for, for a king, he would be reigning over them. He uses rule, rules over them. That's an interesting word. In Hebrew, it means restrain. It means withhold, suggesting that the appointed leader would hold the people in check. Perhaps this means that he will hold them in check and binding them together and keeping them from going their separate ways. As well as sometimes in the cause of the, the, the judges, the time of the judges, people were just going crazy and sinning and being idolatrous. And then they cry out to the Lord and God sends a deliverer to both protect them as well as to restrain them from going back to their um, lawlessness. I believe that this provides a great comfort to us because this truth is also seen in Romans 13. There is not a leader that God that is in place right now that was not brought into its place by, by God Romans 13, how about we open there? Even the clueless Saul was in God's plan, and God will use him to restrain evil 
Romans 13. God gives us instruction to be subject to governing authorities here. Because he says, there is no authority except from God, and those which exist, exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and those and they who have opposed the will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So we, we do know that we live in a world where our authorities are not um, faithful to the laws of God, and yet we do know that it does restrain evil. And in the same way here, with even Saul not being a perfect leader, it's a demonstration of God's compassion toward mankind to establish authorities to restrain evil. Would we be left on our own? We would be like the people of Israel. In Judges, in those days, there was no king of Israel, and everyone did what was right on their own eyes. So he brings a leader to restrain that lawlessness and evil. Now, and then we, we see, continuing here, verse 19, we see the conversation between Samuel and Saul. Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer, go up before me to the high place, for shall you eat with me today? And in the morning I'll let you go, and I'll tell you all that is in your mind. As for your donkeys, which were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? It is not for you and for all your father's household? Saul replied, Am I not a Benjamite, the smallest tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do we speak to me in this way? We, we read this and we think, well, Saul sounds humble, right? He's just being humble here and um, he's having this objection. Kind of sounds like Gideon. Gideon was reluctant to receive God's call to his life. Saul protests that he's unqualified to lead Israel because he's from an insignificant clan with the smallest Israelite tribe. And, and I get it. I mean, if you read the end of the, in the book of Judges, you will see that the tribe of Benjamin almost got decimated because of their sin. I mean, they did horrible things, um, almost got all killed. All, all the women, they, ha- they didn't have anyone to marry because they're, you know, they got most of them killed. Just a few men survived. And yet, um, Saul is a man of standing. He, he comes from a wealthy family, from a significant family. Like Gideon before him, Saul should have recalled that God is able to take the youngest and seemingly insignificant and elevate them to great prominence. This is what the book of Samuel is all about. We've just read in the beginning, God raising the lowly, enabling them to play a a role in the life of the chosen people. That's what we just read in the Song of Hannah. Now, 
You might be thinking, does the Lord's providence only operate in the affairs of major figures in history like Saul in this case, or does he mostly invisible wisdom follow our path as well? I think that the question that we should be asking, is this only in the affairs of kingdoms? Does Yahweh direct only major episode of his kingdom, or does he influence his influence extends to individual lives of his subjects? My answer to that is absolutely. If you were here this morning, you were, we, remember we were discussing the topic of decision-making. You would, might have heard that God's providence is an absolutely encouragement to us. For though we make plans, they, even when they always don't go, don't always go the way we expected, we can be confident that God is behind it. When we plan something that comes to fruition, that too had his finger involved. Let's open our Bibles there again. Proverbs 16, 9. Proverbs 16, 9. What does it say there? The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. I want you to flip a few pages to chapter 20, verse 24. You just see that we plan our way. We think, well, we're going to take this step and the next step and the next step. But ultimately, the Lord is the one that is going to decide that. So 20, 24 says, Men's steps are ordained, are appointed, are guided by the Lord. How then can a man understand his way? For one, I think considering scripture, right? How do we answer that? We understand this is a rhetorical, uh, we understand our own ways retroactively, seeing God's providence. So we always change and baffling providence is not exclusive privilege of some kingdom elite. It extends to each of his people no matter how apparently common. However, unlike for Samuel 9, he might not let you in in a secret. You might see traces of what he has been doing much later as you look back. That's the thing about providence. We don't know when it's happening, but we look back and you can see, well, that was God's fingers right there. More so, I want you to notice that God's providence acts in the context of his compassion for his people. Just take a peek and you will see that this ruler does. In chapter 9, um, after chapter 9 here on chapter 11, Saul does deliver the people of Israel from the Philistines. And later, his son Jonathan, in chapters 13 and 14, Israel's rejection does not paralyze Yahweh's providence. He uses Jonathan to deliver them from the Philistines. Although... Yahweh sees Israel's idolatry in her cry for a king. He also hears her distress in her cry for relief. Israel's stupidity cannot wither Israel's compassion, Yahweh's compassion. No, we must not trivialize the sin of Israel, but neither do we dare to minimize God's compassion. These foolish, stubborn people do not cease to be object of Yahweh's compassions. Again, let no sin be glossed over. Let no excuse 
Uh, it's God denying wickedness in their request with wrong motives. But truly, if you are a child of God, we rejoice to see that your God is not, it is great on mercy, that your sin does not dry up the, fo- the fountain of his compassions, that his pity refuses to let go of his people, even when we are unfaithful to him. I want to show you that this truth is all over scripture. I want you to see for yourself Psalm 103, verses 11 and 14. You don't have to open there, but I'll I'll read it. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so does the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame, and he's mindful that we are but dust. God's providence happens in the context of his compassion. This leads us to our last section here. And God's providence happens in the context of his faithfulness to his word. We keep reading on verse 25 here, the instruction that Samuel was given. When they came up down to the high place into the city, Samuel spoke to, with Saul on the roof, and, and then he arose early at the daybreak, and Samuel called to Saul, to Saul on the roof, saying, Get up, that I may send you in your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. And they were going down to the edge of the city, and Samuel said to Saul, Say to the servant that he might go ahead of us and pass on, but you remain standing now that I may proclaim the word of God to you. And then as we're going to read it here, he's going to give a series of instructions, of, of, of signs that this is going to happen. I'm going to anoint you as king, and these are some of the signs. Then Samuel took the flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you over a uh, uh, ruler? over his inheritance. Now, it's kind of a weird, you know, thing. Just imagine someone, and, and Saul is tall. Just picture this. Saul is a very tall man, and he's probably, like, trying to lay, you know, to lean over. So Samuel was spraying some oil. Like, what is that? It, it's just, it was a way to say, you know, God is enabling this person to, to be a ruler now. That's basically that what it was. And it says, when you go from today, then you will find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelza. And they will say to you, the donkeys which you have, uh, which you went to look for, have been found. Now, behold, your father has ceased to be concerned about the donkeys, and the anxious for you is saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you will go on further from there, and you will come as far as the oak of Tabor, and there, three men going up to God, Abathar will, will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying jug of wine, and they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from their hand. I mean, talk about specificity. <laughs> You're going to see this, this amount of bread, this amount of people, and they're going to say the exact words to you. And then afterwards, you'll come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it shall be as soon as you have come up there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a harp and tambourine and flute and a lyre before them, 
and they will be prophesying. I mean, how weird is that? Prophets coming and singing and praising, and all of a sudden they're going to come to you and greet you. They don't even, Saul didn't even know these people. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another person. Shall be when the signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. And you shall go down before to meet me at Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you, offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings, and you shall wait seven days until I come to you and show what you should do. I want to kind of summarize this, all these signs are all about. One, uh, there, there are three things here. One, it's a review that Saul was God's choice to be Israel's first king. So God wanted to make sure that he had a way of certifying, of affirming that that was his will. Two, it laid out for Saul a series of confirmatory signs. And then, three, in, intimated to Saul the proper relationship that was to exist between the king and the prophet in Israel. See that Samuel was giving him instructions. This is what is going to happen. I am proclaiming to you the word of God, and you ought to follow as I say. We will remember that Samuel's word was compared to God's word because he was speaking for God. Um, so all these signs are happening here. He says, verse 7, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. Once the signs are fulfilled and Saul is convinced of God's presence of enabling power. He is to do what is appropriate, what it comes to him. Now, I do want to make a comment on this whole sign situation here. Why, why did it um, that God sometimes do this? Like he empowered with the Spirit. Um, this promise that the Spirit, Spirit will come upon you, it's a hint of military action. I mean, we remember Samson. That was a very similar expression there, that the Spirit empowered Samson to perform extraordinary physical deeds in this conflict with the Philistines. In Saul's case, the empowerment of the Spirit is associated with the capacity to prophesy, but is um, not ruled out the military purpose. For the prophecy is sometimes a prelude to a military action. This is seen in other passages. Now, this granting of science to Saul... Um, should not be viewed as normative. This is not God, how God shows us, oh, this is my, his will for my life. I've got to look at these signs here. On the contrary, it might be an accommodation to Saul's hesitancy in weak faith. He might not have believed that all of that was happening. This is a special occasion in which the Lord intervenes in a special way to get Saul's attention. Though divine enablement is always necessary for carrying out God's will, Verse 6 should not be understood as a norm. People cannot expect the Lord's Spirit to rush upon them and change them into a different person. There is no warrant for assuming such a broader application of the context in the New Testament. I mean, I've seen in Brazil horrible things. People say, oh, I have the Holy Spirit and are dancing and jumping. I was like, no. Very rare occasions this happened in Israel and it was not a norm, and it's nothing like this crazy thing that you're jumping and dancing. So, Yahweh is, is giving power. That's all that is. But that power is to be, 
be exercised in obedience to the Yahweh's word. So even this, Samuel is giving the instruction, you ought to do as I, I tell you. The spirit and the word must never be separated. What right we think that we can enjoy the Lord's power and presence when we deny his lordship by trampling on his word? Luke 6, 46, Jesus looked at his disciples and says, why do you call me Lord and you don't do what I ask you to do? One cannot help but think that this union of word and spirit is a word in season for the contemporary church. Many crave dramatic signs of the spirit's power, but have little enthusiasm for common obedience to God's word. All right. Now, I want to just skip, read this real quick. Um, it's just an interesting ending. Um, then it happened that he turned back and... Uh, Verse 9 here, it happened when he turned back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart, and all of those signs came about on that day. When they came to the hill there, the whole of the group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily. And then they, verse 11 says, they, even the people were surprised, and they said, what has happened to the son of Kish? He saw now among the prophets. And then this other person contradicts him. A man there said, now, who is their father? Who, is it, who even is this guy? Therefore, he became a prophet. He saw he's among the prophets. When he finished prophesying, he came to a high place. And then, verse 14, I want you to pay attention to that. It, you know, Saul is empowered, empowered by God. He's giving all his instructions, the confirmation. And then, verse 14, now Saul's uncle said to him, he comes back to his house said to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to take, to look for the donkeys. When we saw that he could not be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. I mean, he knew Samuel. He's the prophet. Everybody knew in Israel. So Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys have been found. And that was it. But he did not tell him about the matter of the kingdom, which Samuel had mentioned. I think, as I read this, and it's a sad thing. This, this man has been empowered by God, and yet he cannot understand what God is doing in him. What do we make of all of this? Yahweh frequently defies human expectations and gives the most unlikely people all they need to serve him effectively. I think that's the main lesson of all these signs and all these that happened with him. So he equips all. No matter how unlikely in men's eyes he is, Yahweh is able to make this man able. What this last point teaches us is that God's providence happens in the context of his faithful words. Whatever he said would happen, it did happen. Not because of the people's faithfulness, but because God's faithfulness. As the Apostle Paul said, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself, 2 Timothy 2.13. As we watch the tall, dark, handsome, and dumb tall, we can be assured that he too can use us for what he required of us. God equips those whom he chooses and if God can equip the clueless Saul to be used by God, 
he does that with us as well. He might not have appointed us to a physical kingdom, but he expects us to obey his words, which he has enabled us to fulfill. Think about the Great Commission or the other clear commands of scriptures to you. Now, doesn't he call us, enable people? Open your Bible suit. Let's, let's close on this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And... Um, Verses 26 and 31. First Corinthians 6, and we're looking at, um, no, sorry. Chapter 1, sorry. Verses 26 and 31. For consider your calling, brethren, that you're not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who came to us, wisdom of God from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Can we trust in God's most intricate, compassionate, and faithful providence to transform and sanctify us? Yes, we can. First Thessalonians 5, 23, 24 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved completely without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring that to pass. Let's pray. God, we are unworthy servants. Lord, we are people that make foolish requests, and yet you even use those situations to bring about your will. Lord, may be encouraged that your providence is with us at all times, that you preserve us, that you protect us, that your providence happens in our day-to-day situations, in our trials, in our joys, in our family, in our jobs, at every place your hands are at work behind the scenes. And in this many facets, Lord, in your compassion for us because you care for your people and you're faithful to enable us to do what you require us to do. May you prepare our hearts to celebrate this memorial to your faithfulness by sending Jesus to die for us. In Jesus' name, God, we pray. Amen.